It's a continuation of sin and judgment in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Amen. What does this chapter have to say about sin and judgment? It has much to say about sin and judgment. The first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 13, primarily address partiality in how we apply the law and how we apply the goodness of God that we have received towards others. There should be impartiality, no partiality, no bias. And when we do have a bias, it's a sin. Then in 14 to 26, he explains that true faith produces works. True faith, true belief produces good works. He is explaining the fact that one cannot make a profession of faith 
an empty statement of faith, say he has faith, but not have any accompanying good works or fruit from faith or evidence of true faith. Evidence of true faith must be there. It is in the last half of the chapter that some commentators over the years have misunderstood this. They have misunderstood 2.14 to 26. Those who are of the libertarian or libertine antinomian persuasion, and there are many of those, they misunderstand this passage to be teaching works and works salvation. And therefore they say, well then, you, you can have faith but have no works. And if you say or insist that there must be works or evidence, fruit of the Spirit in one's life, then you are a Pharisee. You are a legalist. Therefore, they have no laws. That's why they are called libertines and antinomians. They want no law. They are against having laws or expectations of good deeds or good fruit as a result of true faith. Then there are those such as the Roman Catholics who say that the Protestants were wrong because the Bible does not speak of salvation by, um, in Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. That these statements are not found in the Bible. In fact, they would say in verse 24 that we're not saved by faith alone. The Scripture says right there, they say, 2.24, we're not saved by faith alone. The problem is, we, we must understand James and what he means by this. And we also must understand what the Reformers meant by it and not make the Reformers contradict James or James contradict the Reformers. If we understand the Reformers correctly and James correctly, then there is no contradiction. The point, basic point James is making is that if we have faith in Christ, It will produce works. James is not teaching that we must accumulate or earn salvation with a number of good works because salvation is only by faith in Christ. But if you have that true faith in Christ, it will be demonstrated. It will be manifested. There will be evidence. There will be works, good works, fruit, That will be in the Christian's life. This is the point James makes. In 2.24, when he says not by faith alone, he means not by an empty, vain profession of faith. You're not saved just by saying that you believe. True belief will produce salvation, but you're not saved just by saying the words, but not really meaning it. And you don't really mean it because there is no accompanying good works. That's what James means in James 2.24, not by faith alone. He doesn't mean not by true faith alone. He means not by false faith alone. You're not saved. There can be no salvation. Let's now go back to verse 1, and let's see what he says about the example, which is a common example, that is making distinctions between the rich and the poor, invalid unscriptural, sinful distinctions. Chapter 2, 1 to 7. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. When we believe in Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, there should be no personal favoritism. What he means is that if somebody is worthy of us responding with good works, then we should do that, whether he's rich or poor. That does not matter. We should respond the way that God expects us to respond to the situation presented to us. In this case, what is it? Verse 2, If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? When there is a rich man, well-dressed, and we know it's pleasant to look at a well-dressed man, not one who is dirty and in tattered clothing. And when our eyes naturally are drawn to that, then we will make a distinction in that. We'll treat him better than the poor man. But everyone walking into the assembly, coming to worship God, should be treated alike. We should not be holding one up above another in reference to their status in society, in reference to the way they look, in reference to the way they are dressed, whether they have a lot of money or a little bit of money. The way we treat them should be impartial. There should be no personal favoritism. And when we do that, verse 4, we make distinctions among ourselves. Distinctions that we should not make. And distinctions that make us judges with evil motives. Evil motives. People say, we can't judge motives. We can't know motives. But James says we can know. We can know evil motives by how a person behaves. How a person treats another. We can know he has evil motives. Motives. The Bible teaches us this very clearly and plainly in many places, such as our passage. Then verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Verse 5 teaches that God chooses the poor. He does not mean God chooses everyone among the poor, but he does choose the poor. He speaks generally in this verse, but he's going to speak specifically in verse 25 when he mentions Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot would naturally be poor based on what sin she's committing. She would be poor and she's a woman, and she's a Canaanitess. In all those ways, she is similar, or might be similar, to the poor man walking into the assembly in ancient times in the time of Joshua. That might be someone like her. And he's saying, God chooses people like this to be rich in faith, those who love him, heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him which means that some among the poor God chooses, some among the poor are rich in faith, some among the poor are heirs of the kingdom, some among the poor love him. We say some, not all. Because there are many among the poor who love their sins, who will never repent, who might claim to believe in Christ, but they don't really believe in Christ, and God is not going to save them. James is not making a statement that God despises all of the rich and loves all of the poor. He's not saying that. He's saying that God does choose among the poor to be rich in faith. Simply stated. We must say this because throughout the years, the, the, the doctrine of Marxism, communism, Socialism, under various names, this doctrine has infiltrated Christianity so that Christians think that automatically God loves and cares for every poor person regardless of whether he has faith. That God chooses all of the poor and none of them are neglected and none of them are despised, and none of them are rejected by God for eternal salvation. That's how many people see it. But that's not James' point. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, 17. He says this 
Isaiah the prophet. And it is valid to use an Old Testament example for this, because those who say God cares for every one of the poor, even if they are very, very wicked people, and salvation is for them too, or they will be saved, or they are saved, even if they are wicked, is false. And they will use the Old Testament to prove it. They might even say Rahab was poor, which is true. But she's one. But not all of the harlots in Canaan were saved. But Rahab was. But also Isaiah 9, 17. This is what Isaiah says. 9, 17. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. God has no pity on the orphans and the widows in Isaiah 9.17. Why? Because even they are godless and evildoers. Even they are. Returning to James. Keep that in mind. And then let's proceed to 2 verse 6. 6 and 7. He, remember, he's talking about a poor man who has true faith. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Yes. It is the poor that is dragged into court by the rich because the rich can hire the lawyers to do something against the poor and drag them into court. And they blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. How is it that they blaspheme the name of God? As we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, one Corinthian was taking another Corinthian Christian to court. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8. And by doing so, they blaspheme the fair name by which they were called. That is, they bring dishonor to the church because the outside world has to deal with a dispute between two Christians. Why can't they figure it out and just resolve it? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, 1 to 8. Does any one of you when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. James, as well, mentions how it is wrong for the rich to take the poor, drag the poor into court. Christian against Christian. Some would say, this is not a sin. It's just a personal preference. It's just the way some people like one and they don't like another. However, that is deceit. That is not true. It is a sin 
And it's not a matter of personal preference or some personalities get along better with other personalities. People want to put these kinds of conflicts or disputes in wrong categories. It is a sin. That's why James says in 8 to 13 that partiality is a sin. He explains, verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The royal law made or decreed by the king of heaven, this royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. When we are following this commandment, we are doing well. James, just like elsewhere in Scripture, summarizes the ultimate best way, simple way, with one short statement, we can know who loves God. Who loves God and who hates God? By this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we love our neighbor, we prove that we love God. If we hate our neighbor, we prove that we hate God. Isn't that what he's saying in verses 1 to 6? Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. If we have faith in Christ, then if we truly love him, we will love our neighbor. But when we have evidence that one is not loving his neighbor then he's showing that he is not loving God. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew seven twelve. Jesus restates, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, by saying, we know what we want others to do for us, then do so for them. And that is the summary or the gist of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Treat others as you want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like you love yourself, love your neighbor. Then if we are doing that, we wouldn't be showing partiality. Then he says it explicitly in 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. There's that word. Partiality equals sin, according to verse 9. Partiality is not, I get along better with some people than others, or I like him, I like his uh, personality, I like his interests, so I'm going to be his friend. That's not the way it should be. That is partiality. When partiality is existing with inappropriate, invalid, unbiblical distinctions, then it's a sin. And we are convicted by the law as transgressors. The, convict, the conviction may not be evident within the individual sinning, but the law is preaching and announcing a conviction against the transgressor. And one day God will take care of that. We are transgressing the law of God. And then, for the antinomians, libertarians, licentious people who are lawless and rebellious, who don't want any laws, any commandments, any sense of obedience, he explains that that is impossible. Verses 10 to 13. Verse 10, 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This is a very important principle of Scripture. James 2.10. Even if we theoretically were to keep every commandment except one, we're still guilty. And not only guilty, but guilty of breaking 
the rest of the commandments. How so? He explains, verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Even if somebody were to say, I have not committed adultery, but he did commit murder, he's still a transgressor. The point is not whether you stayed away from certain sins. The point is that you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, you're guilty. The issue is not whether you have committed certain sins or not, as opposed to other people. The issue is whether you have committed any sin. As he says here, it doesn't matter if you have not committed adultery, but you have committed murder. Also, murder is not just physical murder, which is evil, but spiritual murder is a sin. Spiritual murder is sin. It's a transgression of the law, and God heaps guilt on us for spiritual murder. And what would that be? If you are not loving and preserving the life of another spiritually, encouraging the word of life in another soul, if you are withholding the word of life in another soul, if you are withholding the word of grace in another soul, if you are working against another soul, then you are a spiritual murderer. Is that not what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3? He committed spiritual murder against Adam and Eve. And they immediately died spiritually. So they were dead spiritually after their first sin. And over time, physically, they also died. That would be the same with us. And that is actually the same here, because in verses 1 to 7, when when we make a distinction between the rich and the poor by treating the rich well and the poor poorly, then we're committing spiritual murder against the poor. Spiritual murder against the poor. He's not going to get words of encouragement. He's not going to be receiving words of grace. He's not going to be receiving words of life. Therefore, we're committing spiritual murder against the poor man. This is probably why he has said, commit murder and not adultery. Perhaps that is the reason he has emphasized murder as opposed to adultery. Though adultery is also a common sin. But back to guilty of all. Verse 10. In what sense... Are we guilty of all? When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they not only transgressed the explicit commandment from every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge which is in the middle of the garden you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. They not only transgressed that, disobeying, the explicit, announced, stated commandment of God, but implicitly they broke all ten commandments. And some of the most obvious ones are that when they sided with Satan against God, Satan has become their master, not God. Therefore, Satan has become their God, at least temporarily, became their God, and God was not their God. So they had another God besides God. When they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they inflicted death upon themselves. That means that, spiritually speaking, they committed spiritual suicide. Spiritual suicide. Suicide is what? Self-murder. So they murdered or killed themselves in reference to their souls. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was prohibited. But it says in Genesis 3, 1-7, that 
The tree was desirable to make one wise. Having a wrong desire or evil desire is the same as covetousness. And the tenth commandment preaches against covetousness. What about partaking of a tree that did not belong to them? Then they would be thieves. So they stole. They stole from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one was prohibited. All the others were available, so just partake of all the others. Why do you have to go to the one that's prohibited? When they did, they stole from God. God said no. It all belonged to God. God said no to that one, yet they partook of that one. They were thieves. These are just a few of the ways in which it's easy to show that they broke or were guilty of all of the Ten Commandments. They broke all of the Ten Commandments. They broke the commandment to love God with all the heart. They broke the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself because Adam and Eve did not love each other when they partook and sinned the way they did. They were not helping each other stop sin. They were encouraging each other to sin. So they're not loving each other. They were guilty of all. And so are we, if we were to show partiality. Twelve, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Look at that phrase, the law of liberty. He also stated this in 125, James 125. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. The law of God that God expects us to obey as believers, not to obtain salvation, not to earn salvation, but because we are saved, we want to obey, we long to obey, we want to please God. We are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5.10 Therefore, what we obey is called the law of liberty. He doesn't call it the law of slavery. Why? Because we were slaves of sin, but now we are free from sin and we are alive to God. Our slavery is now to God. And slavery to God is not a burden. It is freedom. Slavery to God is freedom according to the scripture. Not according to man and not according to fake Christians, not according to pharisaical Christians, but according to God, if we are following his commandments as believers whose hearts have been changed, we have a law of liberty. Matthew 11, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus preached the same law of liberty. Not law of liberty, meaning do whatever we feel like, whatever we want, continue in sin, but liberty to obey God, being free in Christ. In the sense that we're free from sin and its penalty, death and the lake of fire. Matthew 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. In 28, the weary and heavy laden are weary in their sins and heavy laden in their sins. But when we come to Christ, believe in Him, and take His yoke upon us, when we take His yoke upon us, learn from Him, He is gentle and humble, we have rest for our souls. And when we have this rest, we experience the yoke of Christ which is easy, the load of Christ which is light. 
we don't complain and carp at the idea that God has expectations of godliness, holiness, fruit of the Spirit for believers. 1 John 5.3 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. When a so-called Christian says that keeping the commandments of God is a burden, when they assert that, they are sinning. They don't understand the nature of the gospel. They have not believed the true gospel. Because the moment we believe the true gospel, we say, obeying God is not a burden to me. It's a joy to me. It's easy and it's light. The desire to obey. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the desire and the condition of the heart. The heart is at liberty. The heart is joyful. The heart wants to do what is right. In that sense, there is no burden. The laws of God are laws uh, laws of liberty. 2.13, James 2.13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does he mean here? Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. If the poor man has faith, then we should accept him and receive him just as God has accepted him and received him. If we do not accept him, then God will not accept us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we don't accept him, forgive him, God will not forgive us. Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 12, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And the meaning of the word debt is not financial debt. He doesn't mean money. He's talking about the debt of sin. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Also 6.14, Matthew 6.14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If God has forgiven men, we should forgive men. If we don't forgive men, repentant, faithful men, then God will not forgive us. If we show mercy, God shows mercy. If we show no mercy, God shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over judgment in the way we treat others, but also between us ourselves and God. However, there is necessary a word of clarification. A word of clarification because the Scripture does not teach automatic forgiveness. The Scripture does not teach unconditional forgiveness. The Scripture does not teach this concept, which is a very, very common concept in Christian churches. Not at all. Ephesians 4.32 Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 He says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive us? When we repented. As Jesus said, we should preach to all the nations. 
Jesus said this in Luke 24, 46 to 47. Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. We repent and God forgives. That means that when others are repenting, we should forgive. That means that forgiveness of sins is conditional. It's based on whether repentance is forthcoming or not. If it is, then we forgive. No Repentance equals no forgiveness. In the context of James, James is speaking about true faith and true repentance. Therefore, we should show mercy. The second half of James now, James chapter 2, 14 to 26. This second half, what he says in this section may be summarized in one verse by the Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, he explains that we are saved by grace. But a verse that is overlooked that concludes the paragraph of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and the last three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, the one verse, Ephesians 2, 10, is the Apostle Paul's way of saying the same thing that James is saying here in James 2, 14 to 26. We are citing Paul because the commentators who distort James and Paul, they make James and Paul contradict each other. Well, Paul says this one thing, but James is saying this other thing. No, they're both saying the same. And what is the passage again? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. However, everybody misses verse 10. They see verses 8 and 9 and they say, Oh, Paul contradicts James, or James contradicts Paul. What are we to believe? Yet, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2.10, he said, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says, good works. But in 8 and 9, he used the word works, and he said, we're not saved by works. Correct, we're not saved by works, but if we have true faith by grace through faith, if we have that true faith, it produces good works according to Paul in verse 10. Ephesians 2.10, And God created us in Christ Jesus for the very purpose of producing good works. And that one verse is what James means here in 2.14 to 26. He just explains it in more words. And the Apostle Paul explains it in more words also. If if we were to read Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's going to say some similar things to what James says here. If we were to read Romans chapters 12 to 16, he would say words that are similar to what James presents right here. It's not as though Paul hasn't explained this profusely. He has in many, many places. Peter has done so. John has done so. All of the apostles have done so in their letters and and books. They've all done so. There is no room for misunderstanding. James is attacking, just like the prophets of old did, and just like the apostles did, just like Jesus often did, They are attacking phony faith. They are attacking people who have the name Christian, but have no evidence of their true Christianity. That's what they're attacking. 
Because it's very easy and common for people to say, yes, I believe. But what they say is false if there's no proof. That's what James means. Let's see as we read it carefully and study. 2.14 What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Look carefully. He says, if a man says, this is a claim. He's professing it. That's all it is. It's lip service. If he gives lip service to faith, but he has no works, what works? Good works, no fruit of the Spirit, no obedience, no desire for obedience, not living according to the law of liberty. If he has no works, can that faith save him? That faith, the faith that is an empty profession, the faith that says he believes, but he breaks the commandments of God or says that one commandment is better than another commandment. I'll, I'll not murder, and I won't commit adultery, but I don't need to remember the Sabbath day. I'm not going to commit murder, but it's okay to use profanity and take God's name in vain. No, it, none of that's okay. If a man says he has faith, then there must be good works that are manifested in his life then that faith, that kind of faith will save, but not the empty profession of faith, according to verse 14. That's why he asks this rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question, but he's about to answer it also. Can that faith save him? And the answer is obviously no. Empty professions of faith do not save. Then now he presents another example. It's interesting, he presents another example of poverty. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You know, today, people not only say, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, to a brother in genuine need. They not only say that, but they also say, I'll pray for you. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. May God warm you and fill you. I'll pray for you. And that's it. But the man is desperate. He's right there in front of you and he's desperate. Help him. Do something. Just like Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, that if you see a genuine need, the man has been beaten and robbed and he's stranded on the roadside. He's lying down. He's helpless. The priest and the Levite walk by, but the Samaritan doesn't walk by and, and just continue. He stops to help the man. That's what he means by, you can't just say things, you have to do things. Saying is, it has its place only if it is preliminary to doing something. But if you just say it and you don't do it, then that's, that's empty. Remember he said in 122, James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So do something. 17. Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The faith that has no good works as a result of true faith there are no true works, then that kind of faith is a dead faith because it's just by itself as empty words. 18. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. The challenge in this statement in 18 is, You... I, I challenge you, I dare you to show me your faith without the works. I challenge you, show me your faith without the works. He can't. All he can do is say something and have some air come out of his mouth, right? That's all he can do. 
make some sounds with his words and have some air come out of his mouth and that's it. But he cannot demonstrate it. If he cannot demonstrate it, then how can I know he has true faith? But the true way of understanding is I will show you my faith by my works. That's what should happen. We demonstrate or show our faith by our works. Good works which accord with Scripture. Not good works which accord with men. Staying busy with many programs and activities in church uh, or things of that nature. Not like that, but true, genuine, good works defined by Scripture. Now, in verse 19, verse 19 should also make us shudder. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Many people will say they believe God is one. There's only one God, and I worship that God. I go to church. I don't go to a a pagan temple, I go to a church building in a, uh, in a church meeting. And I believe there's only one God. I don't worship idols. Okay, they may claim that. He says, you do well. However, the demons also believe and shudder. The man with an empty faith does not tremble, does not shudder, does not think about the holiness, righteousness, wrath of God, when he worships, when he thinks about God. He doesn't think about God in those ways, but the demons do. This means that demons are better than fake Christians. Demons are better than phony believers. Why? Because phony believers are all about entertainment, having their ears tickled, not being challenged by anything, hearing the preacher talk about his personal experiences or what happened to him when he was five years old or what happened to him uh, five hours before the church uh, service started uh, at home with his little child and what, what cute story he can share in the pulpit. That's the kind of thing that happens. But the word itself is not preached. So there is no fear of God in the people. The people don't tremble at what God says. They just have the warm, fuzzy feelings. It's as though they are in church and man and woman, not just children, but as though they are in church and everybody is carrying, putting on his lap in the pew, a warm, fuzzy teddy bear. That's the way they conceive of God. But that's not what he says here. He says, The demons also believe there's only one God and they shudder, they tremble. They are afraid of the wrath of God. Yes, they are. Matthew 8, Matthew 8, 29. Matthew 8, 29. And behold, they cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They wanted nothing to do with Jesus, the Son of God. They correctly identify Him. Notice that. They, correct, they have correct knowledge of who God is. But they want nothing to do with Him. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know they will be tormented. And they are afraid. They shudder that it's going to happen sooner than they expected. Again, men who claim to have faith but have no works are worse than demons, according to James 2.19. Because they never tremble, they never shake, they never quake, they never shudder when they think about who God really is, what His Word says, the judgment to come. There's nothing like that. 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 
he addresses his antagonists here. He addresses those who are detracting from the true gospel. He calls them foolish fellow. That they are unwilling to recognize, unwilling to have conviction and state that they know faith without works is useless. That he calls them foolish here. He calls them other names in this letter as well. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Also, 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. His manner of speaking, speaking in very stern ways, is not contrary to love and compassion. It's not contrary to those virtues of the Bible. If it is contrary to love and compassion, then James sinned in James 2.20, James 4.4, James 4.8. Did he sin or did he not sin? He did not sin. Calling things as they are and people as they are is love. It's not sinful. What sin is mitigating or diminishing the gravity of a sin or an evil deed, which is contrary or common to the, in the world and contrary to the Word of God. The world will commonly do so. They'll say fornication is uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, we just, we, we just love each other. <clears throat> we just moved in with each other. That's all. That, that's all they'll call fornication. It's love because it's between boyfriend and girlfriend, so forth. There are so many ways in which the world diminishes the severity, gravity of sin. Now, two examples, two individual personal examples. 21 to 24 is Abraham, and then 25 is Rahab the harlot. And then a summary of what he said in this second part is verse 26. So 21 to 24, Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In verse 21, he is citing the example of Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, that's when Abraham put Isaac on the altar. And God spared Isaac from death. But Abraham obeyed God. God tested him, and then he did so. He says here, justified by works. What does he mean, justified by works? He doesn't mean justified in the same sense as the Apostle Paul, justified by faith. What he means is that this justification by works justifies the profession of faith. It proves the profession of faith. It reveals it both in the sight of God, who sees all things, but also in the sight of men. It is proof or justification of what he's claiming about his faith. That's the sense in which he means justified by works. He does not mean that people are justified by doing good works to get salvation. He's not talking about obtaining or attaining salvation or earning it. He's talking about the fruit of true faith and salvation we already possess. If we have that true salvation, then it will be manifested and our profession of faith will be justified by the works 
we do, the good works. Also, in Abraham's case, we said Genesis 22. This was many years later. He entered the land of Canaan at the age of 75, according to Genesis 12. About the time he put Isaac on the altar, Genesis 22, Abraham was 125 years old. About 50 years had passed. 50 years had passed in Abraham's life. But Abraham was not saved in Genesis 22 because he put Isaac on the altar. He was saved before in Ur of the Chaldeans, Genesis 15, 7, Genesis 12, 1-3. He was saved earlier, but his salvation was manifested in many ways, and he's taking the most severe of the tests of God in verse 21 and telling us that Abraham manifested good works by obeying God. That's the reason, that's the only example, 21. That was the most severe test Abraham had to undergo. So then, faith or profession of faith was working with works. The result of the works was that faith was perfected. What he said actually showed in his actions. And also, verse 23 quotes Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham was already declared righteous or reckoned righteous. Genesis 15, 6, which also was many years before Genesis chapter 22. Verse 24, once more, James means we're not saved by an empty profession alone. If we have a true profession of faith, then it will show in works. But if we have an empty profession, that empty profession is no salvation because there's no accompanying works. Rahab is another example in verse 25. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? We find the account of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, mostly Joshua chapter 2, a little bit in Joshua chapter 6, and elsewhere, a couple of other places elsewhere in Scripture. But mainly, it's Joshua chapter 2, where she received the two spies or the two messengers that Joshua sent to the city of Jericho. She received them favorably, gave them harbor, allowed them to stay in her home and protected them from the messengers of the king because the messengers of the king and the king heard that Joshua sent spies into the city. And she said, no, uh, they were here, but they've gone. You'll be able to find them. Go, Go in that direction. You'll be able to find them when actually they were still with her, hiding in her house. That's what James means here. Before she received them and treated them favorably, did she not believe? Of course. And she says that in Joshua chapter 2. She says that we have heard what the Lord did in Egypt and what he did at the Red Sea. And our hearts melted. She heard about the Lord before Joshua and the spies reached Jericho. And when did God inflict all the plagues on Egypt? And when did God split the Red Sea? Remember, it was 40 years before. Joshua is conquering Canaan after 40 years in the wilderness. Which means that at some point before Joshua arrived there, she believed in the gospel of Christ, she repented of her sins, and she received the messengers, helped them, and then they made a, an agreement, a covenant, that they would protect each other. She protected them, and then they promised and vowed before the Lord to protect her and her family, and which they did when they conquered Jericho. 
So, she also manifested true faith by her works. That's how we know she was a true believer. Uh, this is also repeated in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11.31, 11.31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She had true faith, which showed in welcoming the spies in peace and sending them out in peace. Finally, 2.26 says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If the spirit within a man is outside of the body, the body dies. Faith without works, likewise, is dead. We're, it's simple. It's not very difficult. The problem is that people want to make it difficult because they want to justify their sins and say there's no judgment coming. But it's not hard to figure out. The scripture is obvious, it's plain, it's very clear in what it's teaching. Shall we manifest true faith by works? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.